History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme, from Westport to the West Indies, the story of how Peter Brown, the second Marquess of Sligo. He set up an educational system for black children in Jamaica that they may get the greatest advantage from their eventual freedom. In other words, that they would be educated because nobody black had been educated before. Anne Chambers on the extraordinary life of the Anglo-Irish aristocrat and why he became enshrined in the history of Jamaica as emancipator of the slaves. Plus, a gravestone in Mount Jerome Cemetery and the poignant tale of a young Nigerian woman. Their records show that Funley is the only person in the plot and that the grave was bought by a man named Lawrence from Lagos. The cemetery records also show that Funmi died in hospital in Dublin. Ronan Kelly investigates the tragic death of Funmi Aina, who died in Dublin in 1965. And to begin this evening, Athlone's nuclear bunker. What would you do in a nuclear war? That was the question facing successive Irish governments during the 1950s and 1960s. It was a time when the world's superpowers were on the verge of open conflict, a conflict that would likely end with missile strikes, mushroom clouds and radioactive fallout. In such a war, no country could hope to remain unharmed, so the Irish government began to consider how it might respond to that awful possibility. In this report, Ian Kennedy explores one aspect of that response, Ireland's so-called nuclear bunker. The early days of Ireland's nuclear bunker, properly known as the Integrated National Control Centre, can be traced through government files in the National Archives. Those files offer a glimpse of a different world, one in which Ireland had suffered the devastation wrought by nuclear weapons. It was from this so-called bunker that an Irish government, or what remained of an Irish government, would communicate with the wider population. To learn more, I spoke with Dr John Gibney, Assistant Editor with the Royal Irish Academy's Documents on Irish Foreign Policy. John discusses the files that shine a light on Ireland's planning for the outbreak of a nuclear war. Well, in the, in the late 1950s, the fear of nuclear war was a widespread thing and preoccupied many governments, and the Irish government was no exception in that regard. And in 1957-58, they put a great deal of thought and effort into coming up with contingency plans for how to deal with the impact of a nuclear war in Ireland. Now, what I mean by that is two uh, is really two things. One was the the impact of a nuclear attack upon Britain, and also on Northern Ireland as part of the UK. You know, the UK was a member of NATO. It was going to be an obvious target for a Soviet nuclear attack if things came to that. And questions about, say, you know, the pattern of fallout from nuclear blasts being wafted across the Irish Sea or down across the border was obviously something that was of concern. But there was also another aspect to this, which was the Irish government also looked into the possible effect of a direct nuclear attack on the state itself, and especially upon Dublin. Because, I mean, while we were technically, while we were neutral, and we were widely seen as being firmly in the Western camp. So they couldn't really rule out the prospect that Ireland might be attacked. And when we say Ireland, we were really talking about an attack upon Dublin. Now, an attack on Dublin was rightly seen as having the potential to pose an existential risk to the state and to Irish society. It was the biggest city. It was the centre of government, centre of, you know, so many government departments and official bodies. Dublin Port was there. That would be put out of commission by a nuclear attack. So many of Ireland's transport networks either began or terminated in Dublin itself. So there were so many things clustered in Dublin that an attack there was going to have a profound, profound impact. 
So how did the government assess the potential consequences of this disaster? And how did they go about planning a response? They based a lot of their estimates of what might happen on British planning for these kind of contingencies. And British contingency plans, um, they kind of assumed that a 10 megaton nuclear blast might be the standard one to think of, okay? So if a 10 megaton nuclear weapon landed on, say, Dame Street, and they explicitly said Dame Street was kind of a natural focal point, well, it will basically destroy everything between, say, Ballyfermot, Dundrum and Thingless on the outskirts of the city. Everything within that radius in the centre of the city would be destroyed and Dublin Port would be destroyed as well. There would also then be a much, much wider hinterland of devastation and damage, of irradiation and fallout, of major damage to buildings. And this is a radius that extended well out into north, south and west Leinster. And within that, you would have there'd be many other issues to deal with, say, the impact of nuclear fallout. And then issues they were trying to grapple with would be, well, how would you get rid of all the bodies that would be there? Like one estimate suggested that at least 110,000 people would be killed by this attack on Dublin. What do you do with those bodies? They said that they would have to figure this out in conjunction with not just public health bodies, but also with ecclesiastical bodies, because the standard procedures for funerals might fall by the wayside. You would be talking about, say, mass burials, possibly even mass cremations to get these bodies off the ground and, you know, remove that public health hazard. Then there's a question of, say, what do you do with everyone else who is fleeing or panicking? How do you maintain public order and impose public order? It suggests that you might have to go down the road of having propaganda broadcast and effectively lie to people to tell them that it's all grand to basically calm them down and stop panicking. People are going to leave Dublin en masse. They were going to fan out into the surrounding hinterlands, but a lot of that would be irradiated as well. So there were issues there. What about food supplies, sewage, drinking water. That's the kind of tenor of the issues they were trying to deal with. If Dublin was wiped out in a nuclear attack, how are you going to keep some kind of functioning political structures running? How are you going to keep society reasonably intact? Okay, we'll get to those plans to maintain some kind of functioning system of government. You have these documents from the National Archives, memos and letters from the Department of the Taoiseach, the Department of Defence, various other departments. And a key assumption in those documents is that the government will have some kind of advance warning of an impending attack, perhaps because of a period of rising international tension preceding that event. And that will give the government the time and opportunity to relocate itself out of the capital. Can you tell us more about those relocation plans? In those emergency plans drafted at the end of the 50s, a big concern was that a nuclear attack on Dublin would wipe out the Irish government. So as emergency planning evolved over time, the obvious solution was to try and get the Irish government out of Dublin. And that meant canvassing various locations that could act as an, as an alternative home. Uh, and not just for, <clears throat> for the cabinet, but also for the wider legislature, for the Oireachtas. Now, we're, we're recording this in the grounds of uh, the old Carmelite College in Moulton County, Westmead, which was suggested officially as one possible home for the houses of the Oireachtas should they be, have to decamp outside Dublin as well in the event of a nuclear war or an attack of any kind, I suppose. And part of the attraction of moat in these plans is its proximity to the town that was eventually chosen as the actual venue for an emergency facility for the government in time of war, and that town was at loan. The government was making its plans at a time when the United States and the Soviet Union were regularly testing increasingly powerful weapons. The largest nuclear weapon ever detonated, the so-called Tsar Bomba, was set off by the Soviet Union in 1961. 
That was followed a year later by the Cuban Missile Crisis. Although a limited test ban treaty was signed in 1963 with the United States, Soviet Union and Britain as signatories, the world remained only a miscalculation, a miscommunication or a mistake away from nuclear war. Yet the Irish government had trouble locating a suitable site for the proposed National Control Centre until, in the mid-1960s, Athlone's costume barracks was chosen. It was, as one document stated, the best option available in public ownership. The precise location of the centre would be at the bottom of the billet block, a large concrete structure designed to provide accommodation for soldiers and whose construction had started in the late 1950s. I visited the billet block and costume barracks where I met a retired colonel of the Defence Forces, Ivor O'Hanlon. Ivor is familiar with the early days of the National Control Centre and, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, he led training exercises in the handling of radioactive material. I spoke with Ivor about the billet block and the centre's beginnings. This area was repurposed yeah. as the National Control Centre. This Center. area was never used in my time for anything military here. It was held as, a, as the bunker for possible nuclear attack or followed. I was down here when a command officer, the GOC or the OC, a command OC came down and uh, we're talking about it and uh, I told him what my role might be in it. And he says, I can't imagine any government staying here any more than a couple of days. And of course I explained to him that the fallout could last ages. And uh, he went away with a big question mark like everybody else did, myself included, how it was going to be used because there was no training done with in relation to a government coming and sitting here. There were no plans made, maybe sketchy plans of Dublin, but there were no plans made by the Western Command to accommodate and pinpoint cooks or administrative staff to come in here. The bomb fell in the morning. There were no beds that they all came rushing in here. I mean, you could have maybe somebody from the American British government's coming over here and you'd have to have some sort of decent accommodation for them. But the Department of Defence documents say that this building was not designed to take a strike by even conventional weapons and that's fair to say this isn't designed to take any kind of no. military strike, no? It could, it could hold out if it wasn't uh, if it hadn't a direct hit from uh, a modern day weapon. Despite its unimpressive beginnings, the National Control Centre did develop over time and new facilities were added to the building during the subsequent decade. To get a sense of how the Control Centre functioned at the height of its importance, I spoke with Paul Mulvey, a retired telecommunications technician and lecturer who, during the late 1970s and early to mid-1980s, participated in emergency drills that took place within the bunker. First, Paul described the Control Centre's layout and capabilities at that time. It is uh, an entire living quarters. They have sleeping accommodation, kitchen and dining facilities, an operations room for planning with maps, a radio studio as well, with mixing desk, uh, record turntables, and a switchboard uh, for connecting the control centre with the major cities around the country, including Dublin. Okay, and when the National Control Centre, the so-called bunker, is described in the media, it's, it's sometimes described as a place in which the entire government could gather together. But from your experience in these drills and so on, it really was only for a select group of people. Is that correct? Well, the facility itself was a command and control centre. So there could have been maybe 10, 12 people who were directly in charge of command and control. 
various branches of the military, the civil authorities and government itself. But they would have had a support network around them. So they obviously would have had technical people for the equipment, medical people and people to do the catering. So maybe there was about 25 people there altogether. The government itself were to go to the Carmelite College in Moat, where they could handle bigger numbers. They had the catering and they had the accommodation and they would be close by the command and control centre, but sufficiently far from Dublin. And Paul, you took part in the national emergency drills to which the national control centre was integral. Yes, uh, I was a technician working in the automatic telephone exchange, which was just right beside the barracks. And for civil defence drills, we would get notice that on a particular day at 9.30am, we were to go to a, a bank of switches. These would all be switched on and that would cause direct lines to Dublin, Galway, Cork, various other cities to be connected directly into the bunker so that the telephone operator in the bunker then had direct access to those cities. Paul also explained to me the importance of the nearby radio transmitter at Maidrum on the outskirts of Athlone. That transmitter, which was connected to RT radio studios in Montrose, Dublin, allowed the bunker to become, effectively, the state broadcaster during a time of national and indeed global crisis. The Maidrum radio transmitter was a national transmitter, medium wave, transmitting to the entire country. The audio for that came from Montrose through our automatic telephone exchange and out to the transmitter. On the day of the exercise, we would change that so that it came from the bunker. And now the bunker could transmit to the country, issuing emergency notices and information about this impending disaster. Now, Paul, those drills in which you participated, although they dealt with a a grim topic, they invariably and fortuitously had a happy outcome. Yes, the, uh, typically around 4pm, a big wind would sweep in from the southwest and take all the nuclear fallout away and everybody would uh, be happy and then exercise was over. Fortunately, the skills learned and the plans developed in those drills were never put into action and the state was not forced to reckon with that ultimate crisis. The integrated National Control Centre in Athlone's costume barracks may be no more. It is now a storeroom. But its history at a time of nuclear proliferation and renewed threats of nuclear war is a reminder of a time when destruction by such weapons was a constant presence in the background of daily life. That was Ian Canelli reporting from the grounds of Ireland's former nuclear bunker in Athlone's Costume Barracks, a facility that provides a chilling reminder of the Cold War and the existential threat posed by nuclear conflict. After the break, I'll be joined by Anne Chambers to discuss the extraordinary life of how Peter Brown, the second Marquess of Sligo. Stay with us. The History Show with Miles Dungan on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back. We're looking now at a man who lived life to the absolute limits, an intrepid traveller from Westport to the West Indies and pretty much everywhere in between. An intimate of kings and emperors, he lived a life of incredible range and diversity. I'm talking about how Peter Brown, the second Marquess of Sligo. From a youth of hedonistic self-indulgence in Regency England, this Anglo-Irish aristocrat became a reforming, responsible legislator and landlord. 
As we'll hear, Brown became enshrined in the history of Jamaica as emancipator of the slaves and in Ireland as the poor man's friend during the most difficult of times. He's the subject of a biography by Anne Chambers. It's called From Rake to Radical, an Irish Abolitionist, and it's published by New Island Books. And Anne Chambers joins me now. Very welcome to the programme, Anne. Tell us a little bit more about the background of how Peter Brown... Well, how Peter Brown, uh, second Marcus of Sligo from Westport House, uh, was born really at a very, I suppose, interesting and very uh, informative uh, period of history. 1788, you know, before the 1798 rebellion here, before the abolition of the Irish Parliament, all of that uh, right up to the early decades just previous to the famine. Uh, And we always think of the Great Famine, but we forget there was a famine in the west coast of Ireland in 1831 in which he was very, very much involved. Internationally, you have the Napoleonic Wars, which he became involved with. You have all of the Regency Book period, which he was very much involved in. So I have to tell you that for through his life, I've been led on a fantastic adventure because he had a great one himself. Uh, now, the the rakish period, uh, first of all, certainly, I mean, reading the book, it is fascinating when you come across the the associates, one of whom would have been Lord Byron, for example. Mm. He was very, very friendly with Byron. He was. You know, when, when I started writing this biography, which indeed took me eight years and 15,000 original manuscripts and letters, this fellow sent uh, letters like we write texts today, um, His life really is divided into three parts. One is, as you said, the Regency book, this young aristocrat with more money than sense who gets involved in the Regency period in London particularly. And that to me was an eye opener. I knew very, very little. I learned about Byron, of course, at school as a poet, but never knew what was behind the sex, drugs and rock and roll if it had been around at the time. They got up into everything. They met at Cambridge where where how Peter actually did get a degree, Byron didn't. He sent his bear, I think, to get it uh, (laughs) instead. And they lived that life of the Regency indulged youth. And it was fascinating to go to see how that, you know, how it really changed the whole of society at the time when the regent came into power, the father, George III, very, very uh, hardworking man, although he had his his problems with his mental capacity. And this regency, the buck taking over and instituting this life for his comrades. And indeed, uh, how Peter himself was best buddies with Byron and they went off on the proverbial world tour and ended up out in Greece, and uh, went on the usual searching for treasures out there and indeed how Peter brought some back and which are now on view indeed in the British Museum on Room 11 there. But all of that brought me on a great journey throughout Europe during that period of time. And then you go to the second part of his life and that is a landlord in the west of Ireland in the most difficult of times leading up to the Great Famine where there's an explosion of population and the land and very poor land over which he reigned in the west of Ireland, was expected to try and accommodate growing families. An impossibility. We have 135,000 farmers today and they're still complaining, you know. Then you had about 7 million people trying to live off the land. So you see him there in a totally different attitude. And I often think that his marriage to the daughter of the Earl of Clanricord changed him totally. And that can often happen, as we all know, and as women hope, of course, uh, uh, present day. And it changed him into a great liberal 
liberal, pro-Catholic emancipation, very liberal towards his tenants of he had about 8,000. You know, and then you go to the third part of his life, which is transferring his the liberal attitude he brought with him as a landlord in the west of Ireland out to the West Indies. He spent time in jail. What yes. happened there? Well, again, we go back to the Regency period. When he was in Malta on his world tour, he hired a ship to go, as I said, treasure hunting in Greece and inadvertently took three seamen from a man of war. Now, his grandfather was the great Admiral Howe, and that's how he gets his name, who was the saviour of England, of course, when he saved them from the invasion of the French in the 1790s. And when he came back, taking the three men, he found out that they did belong to the British Navy. Now, uh, England was at war with France at the time, so it was a huge problem. So when he comes back after his travels in Europe, he was indicted. A celebrity trial at the Old Bailey in in 1816, and he was confined to prison in Newgate for four months and fined the enormous sum of £5,000. So, uh, you know, justice uh, went past his status as as a marquis and his money. You mentioned Catholic emancipation. In fairness, he was a supporter of Mm. uh, Catholic emancipation from quite early on, before he got married, before he Mm. uh, entered onto this, what you would call liberal uh, cycle of his his life. And uh, did he inherit that from his father? Oh, yes. The Brown family were originally Catholic family and like everybody who had some property were forced to change to the Reformed religion. You know, if you didn't do that, you didn't make it. And as a biographer, I always have to ask myself the one question, what would I have done in a similar set set of situation. Let me tell you, the truth can often hurt (laughs) as well as reveal. Um, And they did change. Um, His great-grandfather changed. But they always became, they became the leading lights of emancipation in the west of Ireland. There were a few other, there are Lord Fingal here in in the east coast, of course. And they led the the movement for emancipation before Daniel O'Connell then took it over and made it far more in your face kind of a, a a thing. So he he voted against his own party in the House of Lords and all his letters say that until something is done for our Catholics here in Ireland, I will vote against you. And he kept that right up until Catholic emancipation came in, in 1829. Now, he was, uh, he was the Earl of Altamont, Lord Altamont. He mm. was uh, also the Marquis of, of Sligo, even though most of his uh, land yes. was in Mayo or Galway. It's a, it gets a little bit confusing. But um, Talk to me about the the Brown family as slave owners. How far back does that go? Not very far at all. They inherited their two plantations. Well, one was a sugar plantation and the other was was known as a pen for farm animals in Jamaica. And they inherited that from their Kelly grandmother. Dennis Kelly had to leave Ireland during the penal laws. He was a lawyer because he was not allowed to practice in Ireland. But if you went to the colonies, you could be whatever you wanted to be. And he ended up as Chief Justice of Jamaica and married into the plantocracy in Jamaica. He had an only daughter, Elizabeth. She came back to Ireland and fell in love, hopefully, with uh, how Peter's grandfather. And that is how they inherited these plantations in Jamaica. Now, You know, we get very emotive about slavery and it's a very, very, uh, um, it's a very live issue today and quite rightly so. But, you know, we have to look at the word slaves and slavery within the context of the time it happened. Where the Browns were concerned, they never went to their properties until how Peter himself went in. in But they did take the money. 
Now, the money was, when I looked at the accounts for their, their slave income or their sugar income, you know, like all absentee landlords everywhere, be it in the West Indies or in Ireland, they were taken advantage by their middlemen. And the middlemen were their agents and their lawyers who ran the estates on their, in, in their name out in places like Jamaica. And it's amazing for a young Regency book like How Peter, when I found letters, even at the time that he hadn't really taken on the full responsibilities of his station, either in Ireland or in Jamaica, that he was beginning to start talking about the slaves on his his plantations. And I found letters like asking his agent, was it true that he had heard from somebody else in Westport who had other contacts with plantations that his slaves weren't well? He set up a hospital for them while he was there. Then he had this naivety. He said to the slaves to put up notices all around the plantation that if any slave had any problem with his overseer, he was to write directly to him in Westport, Ireland. Now, a certain naivety, but shows what was going to happen when he became Governor General of Jamaica. He already has this very unusual integration even from a distance with his black workers on his estates. Rewind a little bit and uh, tell me about the course of the abolition of of, mm. of, of slavery, which uh, um, slavery itself, the importation of slaves mm. is abolished in 1807. That's so he's right. only, he's a teenager at that stage. His mm. father is still alive. So his father ha- has control of the, of the estates. Then you have, you know, the great campaign, the William Wilbur forces, Daniel O'Connell as well. 18, what happens in 1833? Well, in 1833, a law is passed the missionaries uh, from the West Indies, particularly the Baptist ministries, are making the issue of slavery far more aware to the general public who have been putting, may I add, tea or sugar in their tea for the last 200 years. And in a way, you know, if there's no demand, there's no supply. So we have to think of that like we think with the drugs issue today. The same thing apply there. And the Baptist missionaries were bringing it to the attention of the general public. And I must say that it was women's groups in England who were beginning to speak out against slavery. Now, the British government then were forced into an abolition. And I say forced because there was huge, huge commercial interest to try and keep slavery there because the bottom, as we know, fell out of the sugar market once slavery ended. So there was a great commercial side to it, shippers, agents, people who made, you know, rum from molasses. All of these people had all an interest in the continuation of slavery, not just the planters. We forget that at times. There's a big commercial side to to sugar production. And cities like Bristol as well. And Bristol and Liverpool, Mm. you know, and Cork and Limerick were allowed to uh, supply the colonies in the West Indies with salted meat. So farmers in the area would have to look at their connection with slavery as well. But anyway, the government of England introduced what was known as the apprenticeship system, that they were going to give freedom to the black people of the West Indy colonies, but... And the big bush was in eight years' time. And how Peter Brown was appointed Governor General of Jamaica in 1834 to implement what was known as the apprenticeship system. 
again, uh, let's rewind a little bit because the the planters, the slave owners, were paid a considerable sum in compensation, far more, for example, has been often pointed out than was paid by the British government uh, to uh, alleviate the effects of the famine in Ireland, something mm-hmm. like uh, two and a half times as much. Um, how did that work out? How much was made available and why was that money made uh, available? £20 million pounds were, was given to all slave owners in all of the islands in the West Indies, all of the British, uh, don't forget, you also have Spanish, you also have Dutch, you have other colonies and French, of course, as well. And how Peter had 250 slaves working on his two estates at the time and he was given £5,500. Very, very small in comparison to the £6 million that was given to the planters in Jamaica. £6 million went to Jamaica. So he got 5500 After coming out of uh, that, he was appointed, as I say, Governor General of Jamaica to implement this weird structure called the apprenticeship system. Now, he arrives in Jamaica in April 1834 with his children. He had 15 children in all. So, I mean, eight of them made that horrendous voyage and his wife pregnant with their next child over to Jamaica. And I can see... Almost immediately when he arrived, he was so shocked by the savagery of the system he encountered and the inequality of it that in a way, you know, he was inexperienced as well as a politician. He had never really entered into the political arena. He always had people representing him in politics. He didn't like speaking uh, publicly either. And in a way, the naivety of him, he should have been, I suppose, a governor who would be objective in between the planters and the slaves in the hope of of getting something together. But what he saw, as he said, my heart overruled my head. He couldn't stomach it. And immediately the Jamaican parliament knew that they had somebody here that was not going to be on the side of the planters. They must have assumed they were onto a good thing because here was somebody who had been an owner, a planter. And was still a planter. Mm. And it wasn't. And you can see the change in him there. And when you read his letters and when you read his letters to the Jamaican Assembly and to people back in Britain, including the King of England, you can see this huge... He said, I arrived in Jamaica uh, to implement apprenticeship and I left it to implement full and complete emancipation. So what did he try to do which got under the skin Mm. of the planters? Well, firstly, he tried to get them to stop the savagery, he said, uh, which was repugnant to humanity. And these were the uh, flogging of females. He saw that with his own eyes. He went to his own estate and he introduced immediately a method of payment for the black workers on his estate. And isn't it funny, in, in 1996, his descendant, Jeremy the 11th, uh, went back to give the museum in Jamaica some of the actual currency that his great-grandfather had got made. That was the first time it was ever done in Jamaica. Secondly, he started employing people of colour, and that's what they were called. We don't like to use that and we shouldn't use that today. But black people were employed for the first time ever in his administration. He gave an open hearing, as was said in the Jamaican press, to any black slave who had a problem with his master. And most importantly, he got 80 independent magistrates to tour all around Jamaica to interview people who were working under the apprenticeship system to make sure that the black workers were being fairly 
done by their white owners. He, like he did in Westport, when he tried to set up multi-denominational education in Westport, was stopped by the Roman Catholic uh, Archbishop of Tume and by the local Protestant minister they didn't want near the twain shall meet. He set up an educational system for black children in Jamaica to that they may get the greatest advantage from their eventual freedom. In other words, that they would be educated because they, nobody, nobody black had been educated before. And he set up two of these uh, schools on his own property in Jamaica. All of which obviously endeared him to the white planters he of did, Jamaica. He did, and I think from an economic point of view as well, he tried to establish agricultural societies in Jamaica to steer them away from the dependence on sugar. Because if you, I went to Jamaica to do my research and I was struck by the sheer, it's a fantastic country that could grow anything. But the domination of the sugar on it and with its implication into slavery, he wanted to stop that. So he did a lot of practical good and he was literally, you know, run out. Well, how did they run him out? Well, this, as he said himself, they made Jamaica too hot to hold me. And that's exactly what they did. They got him on a, a point of law insignificant in the parliament, but it, it, it undermined his authority and the English government wouldn't back him. And when he wrote to the prime minister and said, I am your league, your representative here, but yet you're going with the planters. And he said, I will not continue. And he didn't continue. But that wasn't the end of it. I mean, when oh, he comes back. When he comes back, he became yeah. so effective in the anti-slavery movement. Firstly, he visited America on his way back and consulted with the people who were starting, just starting the emancipation movement. Don't forget, America didn't free their slaves for another 35 years. And he met them in New York and Boston and they really talk about him and how his heart is in this mission. And when he came back, he, he wrote... Wherever the cause of slavery in Jamaica is, I hope I'll be at my post. And he certainly was. So he started writing about his experiences. He produced three pamphlets on slavery. And the most important thing he did was at the great debate which occurred in the British Parliament in 1836 because now the British government knew that the apprenticeship system, you can't promise somebody freedom in 10 years' time. They want it now. Mm -hmm. And they knew that that had to happen. So the great debate took place and it was his pamphlet that influenced it. But what, when the government still dragged their feet about granting full emancipation, he stood up in March 1838 in the House of Lords and said that he was on the 1st of August of that year freeing all the slaves, the 250 slaves on his own plantations in Jamaica and then he left the government with no option but to bring in full emancipation because you couldn't have free slaves in, in two plantations and not have them in the rest. When he was leaving Jamaica, the black people, and I'm sure their money was really, you know, very, very scarce, they all came together and I found out in the National Library in Jamaica a 1,500 names of black people to thank him for what they had done. And they presented him with a lovely silver candelabra, which indeed was on view in Westport House until recently. They called a town after him as well. And they called the first free slave village in the world, Sligoville, which I visited and indeed spoke to many of the descendants of the first free slaves who, that was their town, and it's named Sligoville in his honour, yes. How is he seen in the West Indies? How is he seen in Jamaica? Is he seen as a former slaver or is he seen as oh, an emancipator? Champion of the slaves. But I have to say that in Jamaica, like in Ireland, we don't like to talk too much or didn't like to talk too much about the famine. When you talk about slavery in Jamaica... 
it's a thing that is too painful yet. But how Peter Brown's second Marks of Sligo has a very, very special place and we should be so proud of him here in Ireland. And indeed, when I may I add that when they're pulling them down from their plinths, maybe a plinth should be erected to this man from the west of Ireland who did so much to end the slavery. How come I know uh, quite a lot about Daniel O'Connell's campaign against slavery? The fact that Daniel O'Connell, for example, refused to travel to America until the slaves were emancipated. And I know or knew precisely nothing about what um, how Peter Brown had done. I did know that the Browns were slavers and that they had plantations, mm-hmm. but was completely unaware of this. Why is that? I'll tell you. I think here in Ireland, we have a sense of racism against our former ascendancy, you know, and anybody here in Ireland with the title, I think, is presumed to be a bad landlord and in this case, a bad planter. But, you know, not all people are the same and the same applies whether you have a title or you don't. Earlier this year... Trinity College denamed their library, uh, famously used to be named after George Berkeley or George Berkeley, as he is uh, better known in a part mm. of the United States, which is close to my heart. Um, do you think perhaps that uh, even though he has his own associations with slavery, it would be no bad thing if they were to rename it the Brown Library? Well, I can't understand this campaign that is trying to hide away slavery. You know, we should be looking at slavery from down and dirty in the time it happened, not from the heights of the 21st century. So many people were involved in slavery. As I said, everybody put a spoon of sugar into their coffee or tea in the 18th and 19th century were all implicated. You cannot rewrite history. You have to learn from it. And hopefully we will. The slavery alive and well today, as we know. Where Berkeley is concerned, if they wish to, yes, I think Sligo, because many of his, I think there's around a thousand of his letters in the manuscript department. I, I, I looked at them all there in, in the manuscript department in TCD. If they wish to rename it, why not Sligo? But I don't think this rewriting of history really, you know, we should, as I say, learn from it, not, not try relive it. Well, my guest is Anne Chambers. Her book is called From Rake to Radical, an Irish Abolitionist, and it's published by New Island Books. The History Show with Maz Dungan on RTE Radio 1. It's not often you go into an Irish graveyard and come away curious about an African woman and a man charged with her murder. But that's what happened, Ronan Kelly, when he was in Mount Jerome Cemetery in Dublin recently. Ronan was on his way to visit a grave there when he spotted a gravestone that stopped him in his tracks. The headstone is plain black with white writing. The writing reads, Funmi Aina, late of Lagos, Nigeria, born 27th of June 1942, died 1st of March 1965. Funmi, Funmi, a Nigerian woman in her early 20s in Ireland in 1965. What was she doing here and what led to her dying here? I contacted the administrators in Mount Jerome Cemetery and their records show that Funmi is the only person in the plot and that the grave was bought by a man named Lawrence from Lagos. But the records don't show what Funmi's relationship with Lawrence was. The cemetery records also show that Funmi died in hospital in Dublin. I then went searching the 1965 newspapers in Pierce Street Library in Dublin. I was looking for a death notice, but instead I found a news report with a big headline. Gardi treat girls' death as murder. The papers tell us that Funmi was a commerce student in UCD. She lived in a flat in Harcourt Street with other students. 
But crucially, those early reports don't say why the Gardaí think her death was murder. To find that out, I had to go around the corner in Dublin from Pierce Street Library to Lombard Street and the Births, Marriages and Deaths Office. I asked for Funmi's death cert. When it was brought out to me, the clerk looked upset as they handed it over. The death cert gave Funmi's full name, Olafunmilio Abiola Aina. Then, beside cause of death, complications following an abortion. Back to the newspaper reports. The 1965 journalists reports that Garthi interviewed 100 students and were looking for a taxi driver who carried two people in Rathmines, Dublin, on the night of Funmi's death in March of that year. The papers described the two as a coloured man and woman. The next mention of Funmi in the papers appears three months later in June 1965. Then the headlines read, Nigerian student on murder charge. They report that a 26-year-old engineering student in Bolton Street was charged with Fulmi's murder. His name was Augustin Adekunle Adabiyi and he was her boyfriend. He was charged with procuring or administering an abortion which led to her death. Augustin was the one who brought Fulmi to hospital. When the case came to trial in the autumn of 1965, the court heard that he had walked through the main doors of St Kevin's Hospital carrying her. A nurse rushed to examine her but discovered no pulse. Augustine asked if there was anything she could do to help fund me and she replied, I'm afraid not, she's dead. The nurse testified that this news seemed to make no impact on the young man and he said, why did she die so young? However, a doctor at the hospital testified that Augustine was upset and agitated. On hearing that his girlfriend was dead, Augustine then rang the father of a fellow student in Bolton Street. This man, Michael Wall, was a Garda superintendent. On the phone, Augustine told him that he was in trouble and said, Funmi is dead. Superintendent Wall said that Augustine was fully cooperative with the Garda. He himself brought Augustine to the flat in Harcourt Street, where Augustine told her flatmates that Funmi was dead. One of the women collapsed at the news. Then Superintendent Wall brought Augustine to Augustine's own flat on Belgrave Square. But the superintendent recalled that Augustine didn't go into his own flat, but to another one in the building, where he played cards for some considerable time. At no point, the superintendent noted, did Augustine say anything to the other card players about Funmi or what had happened that night. According to the prosecution, this was, quote, extraordinary conduct in the extreme for a man of Augustine's position of bringing a dead girl to a hospital to be playing cards one and a half hours later. When Augustine carried Funmi into the hospital, she was wearing a grey frock, two jumpers, a red coat and calf-length brown rubber booties, but no tights or underwear. The prosecution said that this was significant. Funmi's younger sister, Elizabeth Aina, was at school in St Wollstone's in Selbridge. The next day, Augustine came to tell her that Funmi was sick and brought her to the Nigerian embassy, where they told her that Funmi had died. When he was interviewed by Gardi, Augustine told them that he had been in his flat in the evening studying when Funmi came around. Although they had been doing, quote, a serious line for six months, they had never discussed marriage, and he was surprised when she came to his flat. She told him that she had been out for air and just popped in, but testimony from a taxi driver was that she had taken a taxi to a few doors down from his flat and walked the rest of the way. While Funmi was in Augustine's flat, she complained of dizziness and he suggested she lie in the bed. He applied cold, wet towels to her face but then noticed froth at her mouth. 
He then went out and got a taxi to take them to the hospital. On the way to the hospital, he argued with the taxi driver that he was taking longer than was necessary to get there. Funmi's head was in his lap and he kissed her. Augustine asked the guards if the fact that Funmi had been in his flat would appear in the papers. He said his parents would be raging as he'd agreed not to go out with anyone until after he qualified. Court reporters at the trial were prohibited from publishing some of the medical evidence, presumably because it referred to pregnancy and abortion. But in its summing up, the defence relied on that evidence which said that earlier in the day, Funmi had been injected by someone to procure an abortion. And that the injection had been administered by someone with the required skill and knowledge, which Augustine didn't have. The defence said that while Funmi and Augustine were boyfriend and girlfriend, there was evidence that she'd had intimate friendships with persons who had medical skill and knowledge. When you read this, you immediately have questions. Did Augustine know Funmi was pregnant? Did she say the baby was his? What was she thinking when she went for the injection in the afternoon? Did she tell him who administered it? But there are no answers to these questions in the court reports because Augustine wasn't called to give evidence. In the reports of his summing up to the jury, the judge said they needed to prove beyond doubt that Augustine had injected Fulmi causing the abortion which led to her death. The jury retired for two hours and came back with a verdict of not guilty. Augustine threw up his arms with relief and was immediately surrounded by other Nigerian students who'd been in court throughout the trial. And then Augustine disappeared, from the Irish records anyway. I just couldn't find him. I wanted to ask him what those months were like, what Funmi was like as a person, what he thinks about the time almost 60 years later. But I couldn't contact him. There's one man of the same name I traced to a company in London, but it wasn't him. An obituary reported on in the Nigerian papers talks of a retired engineer of the same name dying in 2017. But researchers I've been in touch with in Nigeria say it's a very common name and record keeping is not ideal. So it'd be next to impossible to find Augustine or his family, or Funmi's family for that matter. So the telling of the story of Funmi and Augustine is left to be done in Dublin, and it's done unsatisfactorily, by papers on microfilm in Pier Street, where there are no photos and hardly any reference to their personalities, and there's the death cert in Lombard Street, which is equally sparse, with just the cause of death. And then there's the plain headstone in Mount Jerome, although this does have a few lines of verse put there by the man who paid for it, Lawrence from Lagos. They read, Funmi Aina, beautiful memories at dusk of day, neither time nor tears can take away. That was Ronan Kelly on the death of Funmi Aina in Dublin in 1965 and the subsequent charging with murder of her boyfriend, Augustine. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Liam Mullen on sound and our researcher Ian Kennelly. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.